The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. Today we bring you Griffin Barber's discussion with Jacob Hollow about his new novel, The Dyson File, which is set in the larger Gordian Division series created by Hollow and David Weber. But first, a word of apology. Uh, some of you have pointed out to us that Tinker seems to be, have missed a few chapters in the audiobook. In fact, we went from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 14. That was an editing mistake, and we have corrected it, picking up with chapter 6 today. But apologies for the spoilers. Now here's Griffin Barber and Jacob Hollow. Hi there, I'm Griffin Barber, your host for today's edition of the Bain Free Radio Hour. Jacob Hollow writes across the genre with novels in military SF, space opera, YA urban fantasy, and steampunk fantasy. His latest book is The Dyson File. His first solo book in the time travel space opera series, he collaborated with genre giant David Weber to create. Hello and welcome, Jacob. Hello, great to be here. So hardest question first, what is the coolest aspect of The Dyson File for you as the writer? So given that we're we're at book five in this series right now, and the, the file books, since they're police procedurals, they're sci-fi police procedurals at their heart, um, we get to really dive deeply into the, uh, the setting. Um, the first two books, uh, The Gordian Protocol and The Valkyrie Protocol, um, because of the, the big existential threats that um, our protagonists have to deal with in both of those books, you spend most of your time dealing with those uh, threats rather than, you know, kind of uh, soaking in the setting. Um, one of the nice things about a police procedural is that it can take, um, you know, the, the main, you know, cast to a lot of different places. And you can kind of, you know, I think readers will enjoy the, um, uh, the richness and the quirkiness of our, uh, our, our future setting uh, in this case, because they, they go to, you know, it's, it's primarily on Saturn, on a megastructure on Saturn. Uh, though it, it goes to a few other places. Um, but this megastructure has a lot of interesting corners to it, such as a park uh, where you get to hunt dinosaurs. Right. Um, it has a kind of sort of cult that kind of sort of worships the planet Mercury. <laughs> They're not jobs. Um, it, it has it has all sorts of, of weird places. It has a... Uh, um, it, what what they refer to as a uh, a nudist colony, but it's not what you think, <laughs> because it's essentially people with synthetic bodies on the exterior of the um, of the megastructure, exposed right. to Saturn's atmosphere. Hence, they they are naked from a certain perspective. Right. <laughs> um, so, is, that, is it the same as your as a fan of SF? That uh, you know you enjoyed writing that, but it, would it be the same for you reading it as a as an SF fan? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, um, that there are, I'd say, as a as a reader, um, you know, the the world building certainly is is uh, is something that that I feel you know I, I would enjoy if I were coming to it blind. Right. Um, but 
I also uh, would appreciate the um, the way the, the mysteries laid out because um, all of the, basically the reader gets information pretty much in line with our, our star detectives, if not a little bit before them in some cases. Um, so, so when you have the, uh, uh, the, the flag goes up, um, that, that one of the characters says, aha, I have figured it out. It's like, okay, reader, I'm giving you fair warning. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, time to place your bets. Right. <laughs> who, who's, who's the culprit or culprits. Right. And then, you know, then you have in the next scene where, where the big reveal happens. Um, so I think that, uh, I play fair. Uh, with, with the reader in, in that regard. That's something that, that David and I have, have strung to achieve in previous file books. And I think we I achieve in this one. Um, and uh, I think it's, you know, a tough but fair mystery that uh, readers who want to engage with the book on that level uh, will be rewarded. So it sounds like you uh, had a hankering to explore some of these aspects of or some of the uh, less detailed corners of the Valkyrie protocol uh, yep. and uh, the protocol books to be able to kind of explore those a little bit more. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, the, uh, uh, the Dyson realization project has been something kind of in the background of the, uh, um, uh, the, the Gordian division books for, for quite a while now. It may, I'm trying to remember, it may get a mention in the first book, um, and uh, the uh, the Mercury Historical Preservation Society, um, which are the, the the nut jobs who don't want mercury to be uh, uh, used as a, you know, I mean, mercury is just a rock. No one else, no one's using it in this setting. It's just a rock hanging out there by the sun, and so they want to tear it apart, use its resources to build a big solar collecting megastructure, hence a Dyson swarm, um, which is you know where the name of the, the book comes from. And uh, and there's like no no we, we you can't destroy mercury this is important for posterity it's like guys it's a rock <laughs> and so there's just been this you know mentions of this political back and forth um, through, throughout the books and it's like stuck in courts or there's like protests and and whatnot that kind of go through and and it was. It was fun to bring those elements to to the foreground to have like, you know, things that are just sort of to a certain degree name dropped in a previous book. It's like, right. hey, here it is. Right. Um, Going from and, the flavor to the feast. Yes. Yes. And and the uh, the 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 society, the Mercury Historical Preservation Society, just the society for short. Um, they're they're a quirky bunch of nut jobs. <laughs> They, they, they um, are one, one of our uh, star uh, characters, uh, Isaac Cho, who's um, the, the, the main detective. He's kind of the, the more uh, straight-laced of the pair, the more traditional detective, um, goes to uh, one of the society meetings. And uh, this woman comes out and is just sobbing and embraces him. And it's like, come in, we have cupcakes. <laughs> And it's, and he's like trying to get his questions in edgewise. It's just not, just not letting him. And and those sorts of uh, you know fun interactions are they're fun to write. And I think you know the the, the joy that I experience writing them comes out in in the reading uh, reading experience. Yeah, I, I did enjoy that. 
uh, <laughs> having dealt with a few uh, individuals like that myself. Uh, so the Dyson Files, a sequel to the series, begun in the Janus File and follows characters originating in the Protocol series. Uh, how hard was it to keep track of the various threads of these two universes while writing the Dyson File? Kind of dovetails with the, how much fun was it to yeah, bring so, the so the interesting thing about um, the Dyson File in terms of where it fits chronologically in the series is it actually fits between the Janus File and the Veltol File. It actually happens pretty shortly after the Janus file concludes. And uh, I don't think this will bother uh, longtime readers of the series at all because the file books are all meant to be fairly self-contained. Right. Um, yes, there is this kind of overarching future history. There are you know mentions of events that will culminate, uh, for example, in the sixth book, the Thermopylae Protocol, which Dave and I just uh, finished the uh, the content edits for, um, but uh, the uh, the file books are very much. Hey, we are introducing a mystery for our detectives to solve. We have shenanigans in the middle, and then the mystery gets solved at the end. You know, it's it's pretty much a com each one of them is a, is a complete package. Um, so from that regard, um, that part. Is 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 fairly easy. Now, the reason why the uh, um, the, the the books uh, came out, you know, in, in the order that they did, is that I actually created the outline, uh, the the basic outline for uh, the Dyson file before Dave and I created the outline for the Veltol file. Uh, so I had this idea, you know, for for um, Isaac and Susan, Susan being the the other um, detective, the uh, the one who uh, has the tendency to shoot first and blow up her problems rather than... The door kicker. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so so I had actually created um, the, the outline for the Dyson file. And then David and I are talking and he had certain things that he wanted to include in in the, the next file book. So I, and so I set that outline aside, and we worked on what became uh, the Veltol file. But I had this outline just sitting there, and then uh, Tony Weisskopf and I were, were talking about you know uh, what what I was going to be doing next, and she wanted some solo work from me. So I said, "Hey, do you want something original, or do you want it to be an existing series, namely uh, Gordian Division?" And she said, "Let's embrace the power of Ant." So I presented her with two proposals and she bought both. I'm like, oh, cool. <laughs> oh, I got uh, a lot of work to do. Yeah, yeah. Catherine, I've been busy. <laughs> because David, David and I, we had, you know, more books to write uh, in Gorian Division. And then I had two more books to write. So, so yeah, the past few, uh, few years have been kind of dense project-wise for me in a good way. Um. You know, we, we've talked previously about all the uh, big idea SF that's uh, packed into this series. Uh, should the readers be on the lookout for any new and shiny tech in the Dyson file? Oh, yes. <laughs> Very much so. Um, because um, the uh, the a, a lot of the plot revolves around the rivalry between two companies, uh, Atlas and Source Code. And these two companies have been um, in competition for the contract for the Dyson Realization Project. 
And the uh, event that kicks off the, uh, uh, the book is that Atlas has won the contract and then Atlas's chief engineer commits suicide or what appears to be suicide. And um, then our, our heroes are sent in to you know, assess the truth of the matter. And the truth is a very squirrely thing. <laughs> And uh, then the the rest of the novel uh, follows. But in in the background, you have two engineering companies vying over a major project, and they have different philosophies, both in terms of how they are um, organized personnel wise and how their tech is set up. And so tech does uh, does play a role in it. One of the uh, the companies. Um, is very much about um, kind of like you know, microscopic self-replicators being, you know, how they solve most of their problems. Whereas, uh, and that would be source code, whereas Atlas is more about macro level uh, solutions, really big things, building bigger things. Uh, which, uh, which really, the, the first project style, the nanotech style really scares Susan and, and her universe because they, have a terror of uh, of having had bad experiences with. Uh, yes, technology. yes. Uh, so not a whole lot of things frighten Susan, um, but but uh, nanotechnology is one of them, right. and 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 yeah, it it kind of it kind of creeps her out, and and for good reason because she, you know, in, in her uh, um, previous assignments, she's had to deal with a lot of very nasty terrorists using technology in very nasty ways. Such as liquefying people with nanotech, and that's something that she's had to deal with, you know, day in and even, day out. Even you know, before she became a, 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 we find out in the, I think in the Welltel file, right? Mm -hmm. Found out that she, even before she became a door kicker, she was uh, exposed to the dangers of nanotech and uh, that kind of stuff. So yeah, in fact, one of the you know formative events in her past was that she uh, uh, she was almost killed. Uh, during a terrorist attack, and that um, really shaped her perspective, uh, perception of you know, hey, how as I, how can I as an individual help with this problem? And so she signed up, and hasn't looked back, and uh, <laughs> tends to uh, approach her problems from the you know, if we blow up this problem, that will solve it. And and you know she she's you know Isaac has mellowed her a bit, but uh, but she definitely has that instinct, and I think that's one of the the ways the two can play off of each other in an amusing manner. Right. So uh, as you said, the uh, uh, project manager commits suicide under strange circumstances or questionable circumstances, uh, and the powers that be decide to put the partners on this light duty, in quotes, case. <laughs> Uh, as the decedent was the chief engineer on the mega project, uh, the Dyson project uh, involving Mercury. Uh, I know you have an engineering background, and I wonder what you actually think it will take for us to start to engage in such a restructuring of our solar system. Uh, 100 years, two, three? Uh, you know, stuff like that's really hard to put a, a time frame on. And there are, there are a lot of hurdles uh, for, for us to get there. Um, I think probably the, the biggest one is, is what I've heard termed as um, uh, gravity debt, in that all of our infrastructure is stuck in this gravity well. 
And it takes a lot of energy to get anything substantial out of this gravity well. And, and even, you know, even what we've done, you know, so far in terms of putting satellites, it's like, well, you're still mostly in the gravity well. You haven't really, you know, gotten out there yet. And so what, and so that's, I think the, the, the first step, the first biggest step is establishing um, an industrial base, you know, further and further out of the gravity well. I, you know, you could, you could, you know, build one in, in orbit. Um, and, and also, you know, to the point where instead of moving stuff from the surface to, you know, outer space, building stuff in outer space. Right. And so I, I guess the, those two parts kind of go hand in hand. Um, and, or you can also, um, uh, you know, as an, as another option, build a, an industrial base in a more shallow gravity well. The moon being, you know, the most most logical um, place where that could occur. Right. Um, so, uh, overcoming gravity debt is is a big problem, and it's going to take a while for us uh, to to get over that. Um, the other thing is that right now there's no real way to um, make money. In space, you know, you, you can you 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 do have you know the like say communications uh, infrastructure that right. is up there. It's like okay, that's you know that's a thing, but but nothing's really being made up there. Um, and until space becomes profitable, and there's I don't know, for lack of a better term, a, a gold rush in right. space or something akin to that. Um, people are just yeah, going to keep building stuff down here because it's cheaper yeah, and it's easier. <laughs> to take a page from the European colonial efforts, it was all because we wanted to get a hold of them, them wonderful spices and the silks and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So as soon as we're motivated to do something uh, seemingly impossible, then we might actually do that. Now, there are a lot of riches. Okay. There, there are there. There's you know if if you look at the solar system, it's it's a buffet of rich, rich resources. You know, material resources, energy, just just there for the taking. But our skills, a skill set, our tool set for you know, um, uh, you know, taking those resources and and converting them into something are pretty darn primitive right now. Well, and even you know, beyond that is the legal questions, too, because there's a lot of treaties that govern what we can and can't do in space currently. Yes, yes, there, there, there's that as well. And and, you know, you, you do have you, you're 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 absolutely correct. There is not only a um, technological uh, side to, you know, how we actualize our, our future in space, but also political societal questions as well yeah. and you know there's there's also you know a you know a, a darker half to this is that you say once you get to the point where you can you know um corral asteroids into earth orbit and and mine them for for resources you're just a hair's breadth away from dropping asteroids on the planet yeah. well even um, beyond, and this is even, a very bad thing yeah. <laughs> even before that though you can tank the economy based on you know so much of a, res a given resource that you know 
we're was valued at a billion an ounce or whatever. Now it's oh, yeah. valued at a million an ounce. And that really messes things up. So yeah, yeah it's, it's a yeah, fascinating just, just, uh, you know, just uh um, I mean, you you have uh, a lot of our economies, you know, dependent upon you know the acquisition of rare earth elements, right? You know, um, and what if rare earth elements are no longer rare? Well, that's going to cause ripple effects all throughout the economy, and some people are not going to like that, <laughs> and they're going to not want that to happen because of their control over that part of the the market. Um, so yeah, it's it. I don't have an answer. I guess it's the short of it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on from there then. So the Dyson file returns to Saturn and its environs after a very close call for our intrepid investigators uh, Isaac Cho and Cantrell. Uh, still dealing with that close call, Cantrell and Cho have been placed on desk duty, uh, made into perennial house cats. Uh, while they recover, or at least while the uh, administration figures out what to do with them. Uh, at its core, the Dyson file is a buddy cop story, but with the buddies being brought up in entirely separate universes, the pair adapting uh, to their changing relationship and the challenges they face in different ways. Uh, are there any particular changes in those relations we should watch out for in the Dyson file? So the uh, like worst kept secret in the Gordon Division series is that Isaac and Susan are like perfect for each other. Uh, <laughs> not only professionally, but romantically as well. Um, they just don't realize it yet because they're just that dense. <laughs> so, so that's been uh, like a fun aspect. Okay, so Isaac and Susan uh, are the two characters that I enjoy writing the most of any character that, characters that I've, I've ever written uh, in any, any book or series. Um, they're just absolute joys to, to write, and they're great characters to pit, um, to play off of each other. Um, those scenes just basically write themselves, and I think the, the joy that I experience as an author comes out on the page. Um, they are, you know, and and when you first meet them in the Janus file, it's like, man, these these two seem to be, you know, just the 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 worst pair imaginable and and then you come to realize that oh actually the opposite is true they they work really well together and they cover for each other's um weaknesses very very well um the uh the thing is is that they are very much successful together and if they didn't have each other to kind of cover those uh, those blind spots that each of them has they would, you know, they would fail, and in, in some cases, fail and die. Right. Uh, <laughs> but fortunately, they've got each other. Right. Um, but they are also both very career oriented, and and very dense when it comes to to romantic things. I think Susan is perhaps slightly less dense than Isaac is, but only slightly, um, or at least more and, physical. <laughs> Or at least more physical. So like she's more aware of physical things. But um, uh, that that is uh, that that is something that I I've been playing with, and it does have an endpoint. It's just not in this book, <laughs> but it does have an endpoint planned. All right. Um, so uh, which character in the Dyson Files kind of leapt out and surprised you? 
So the one character that surprised me is uh, uh, for, for a number of reasons. So uh, we have uh, one of the characters who actually kicks off um, bringing uh, Isaac and Susan in. And that character is uh, Trooper Randall Parks. And, and Parks is, uh, he's, he's, he's fairly new to the, the Saturn State Police. Um, and he's fairly young and a lot younger than the reader might at first expect him to be. Yeah. Um, and because of his interesting background, um, which I won't spoil, uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, tiptoeing around this as I talk about it. Um, his characterization was difficult to nail down uh, and kind of gave me the most trouble. And, and you, at, at the first time you meet him, it's like, why would this character like give, give Jacob trouble? Because it's like, oh, he's just, you know, he's a, a support character. He's, you know, right. a, a new state trooper. You know, he's he's being used to you know provide information to our leads. You know, what what what's the issue? It's like, well, <laughs> you'll find out. <laughs> so but, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, but but yeah, he um uh, he was the one that I sort of um struggled the most with to kind of nail down and get right. And and I think I eventually landed there, but um you know, when he was in the outline, it's like, oh, this character isn't going to be a problem at all. And then I start writing him. It's like, huh, I didn't think this through, did I? <laughs> so but, uh, he came to be because you had to, uh, you needed that uh, draw to bring the other characters in and to kind of raise the questions. Well, well, that was the, the role, you know, the mechanical role that, that he right. played in the story. But uh, him as a character, um, I had been thinking about for for quite a while, actually. Um, I, I wanted to do, you know, again, I'm tiptoeing around this, a character of this nature uh, for a while. And it's sort of related to the nature of the setting itself. Right. Uh, in that um, the way that technology has caused uh, humanity to sort of diverge, you know, organic, synthetic, and the abstract or virtual portion of it. And um, I think that division and how those different uh, elements of the society interact and sometimes conflict uh, is, is an interesting part of the setting and one that I, I enjoy exploring. And, and, and Randall and or as as his uh, his partner calls him Rainy, <laughs> Rainy Parks um uh is is one of the way one of the vehicles that uh uh i use to uh to explore that oh, cool. so uh in a similar vein which character from the dyson file would you want to avoid like the plague and why okay so um uh julian bose he's the the ceo of the uh the uh, atlas and um <sighs> He's a terrible boss. Um, and well, okay, let, let me let me clarify that. He's very good at his job. He gets stuff done. I would just never want to work for the guy. Right. Um, because he's very much out for number one. And he will, you know, 
make you think to your face, you know, that, that he cares. He doesn't care. <laughs> he doesn't care at all. You're just a tool to use. You know, you're you're just you're just a tool for him to, you know, um to push his own career forward. And he doesn't to care if the the treads of his career you get ground up in the treads of his own career. Right. Um but but he'll he'll smile and he'll he'll you know he'll just shower you with thanks sympathy while he's grinding you to dust. Um he's a terrible person and I, I would not want to have to deal with him on any level. Well, there we go. I guess that's pretty definitive. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, which character would you want as an ally? Oh, uh, Susan. <laughs> In a heartbeat, Susan. Um, and and for 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 a number of reasons. First of all, that um, uh, you know, if there's trouble that that uh, you know, some sort of trouble that requires a uh, a physical solution. Um, Susan can be that physical solution because she has a, you know, a full synthetic body and even her general purpose body kind of treats small arm fire as an annoying light rain. Um, and she has an even meaner body that she can get into when, you know, push comes to shove. And in that combat frame, she can shove pretty darn hard. Um, on top of that, uh, Susan is an avid gamer. Um, so, you know, Susan would be fun to chill with. Right. So, so yeah, um, Susan, <laughs> which is one of the reasons, you know, that, um, I really enjoy, you know, writing, uh, her, uh, her character is she, she's just, she's just a fun character to write. Same with Isaac. I really connect with both of them and I enjoy writing both and I enjoy writing both together as a pair. I keep so, saying. <laughs> not to give anything away, but uh, the Dyson follows, uh, Dyson file follows your investigators as they're investigating a suicide we've already covered. Uh, but having had some personal experience in that arena, uh, you continue to impress me by showing how various interests can derail an investigation or trying to control the narrative often reflexively rather than out of any real need. Um, did that uh, aspect of realism for this uh, particular story come out of experience research or did you just wing it? Uh, it's it's very much um, from, from the research side. Um, and there's, <clears throat> there, there's a, a few components to this. The, the most obvious is that um, before Dave and I presented Tony with the... Um, um, what became the the approved outline for the Janus file? Um, we had a, a very different outline that we had presented, and uh, Tony's like, "This is a thriller. It's not a police procedural." Jacob, go start reading uh, Edmund Bang's eighty seventh precinct novel. Come back later. Come back after like ten of those books. It's like okay, so I start reading them, and I immediately fell in love with those books. Right. And I also was like, "Aha." This is this is what Tony is looking for uh, from this manuscript, um, and uh, there's a lot of eighty uh, seventh precinct um, style, like investigative techniques um, DNA in how Isaac approaches problem solving, um, and um, but also I think that um, the 
my background as an engineer actually helps here. And that, that may, may sound strange at, at, at the surface, but, but let, me, let me explain. So <clears throat> on the surface, an engineer and you know, a, a detective don't have a lot in common, right. obviously. Um, very different fields, very different, you know, um, everything. They talk about building a case. But um, uh, at, at its core, you know, a, a detective is a problem solver. Right. Now, it's a particular kind of problem. And an engineer at its core is also a problem solver. I, I kind of think of, you know, myself as an engineer, as a trained technical problem solver. That's kind of how I feel uh, with my with my background there. So the problem solving aspect, the, you know, the, the fact that, you know, disciplined, you know, detail oriented problem solving skills, you know, I, I feel migrate well from one to the other. So I actually think that my background as an engineer helps me write Detective novels better. <laughs> I know it, it sounds weird at at, at the uh, surface. Again, it, they, 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 you know, one of the things you talk about is building a case. You're building a case against somebody. You're building a case to find out who it was that was doing something. And it, okay. while the the sub skill sets might be widely varied and different, they're Very still so. it, it's still the same kind of uh, uh, point tip of the spear. Is the the idea mm -hmm. being you know we're going to find leverage to make this work. And all of those things are, are are kind of closely intertwined. So it is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the uh, Dyson uh, files deals a lot with a concern over the loss of control over a certain technology or certain project. Uh, was that uh, kind of baked into what you, the idea when it came to you, or did you grew out your your work with the previous books? It sounds like the outline was kind of established already. Uh, yeah. The uh, <clears throat> the um... The technological aspects uh, aspects of, of of the book, um, you know, were, were very much something that I wanted to explore in the series, and it was just sort of a matter of finding the right crime to fit um, what I wanted to do, and uh, um, it also, you know, in going through the um, uh, the eighty seventh precinct novels, one of the things that that uh, came about uh, from that was. Uh, um, one of the books dealt with a, uh, one was on the surface of suicide and turned out to be a homicide. And the, the ASM precinct detectives treated it as a homicide until proven otherwise. Um, and, and it's like, Hey, you know, we, you know, we, we, we treat suicide as, as a potential homicide. It's like, ah, well, that makes a lot of sense. I can use that. <laughs> and, and so I did. <laughs> use it all. Um, and uh, um, so, so those, those two as aspects uh, kind of um, were, got married together as the initial seed, wanting to explore the, um, uh, the, the macro technological aspects of the, 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 the setting. Uh, and and also having a uh, a crime investigation that starts with a suicide that ends up being more, um, much more, <laughs> actually, uh, than it appears uh, at the surface. Um, but uh, you know, also, 
and this is this is going to sound really really strange, but um, I was reading a uh, uh, part part of uh, when I was working on on this book took place during the pandemic or at, at some point I don't remember exactly when, uh, but the pandemic was you know clearly a thing, and I was reading this book uh, titled Immune. And the, the, the book was uh, put forth by the guy behind, um, I'm probably going to butcher this, but YouTube channel Kurzgesatz, um, uh, which uh, has a lot of uh, science-related uh, shorts, animated shorts that it does, um, kind of uh, explaining uh, very um, kind of detailed concepts and making them accessible to to a wider audience and uh the author had actually um uh been uh, uh had faced uh his had basically had his own battle with cancer and so um had put together this book as part of his own journey in understanding you know not only his his body's immune system but how his you know own immune system could you know fail him and uh, so I was going through that, and um, first of all, the book Immune is a really interesting um, uh, nonfiction uh, read for anyone interested in the immune system. Um, but also having uh, an immune system from a technological aspect, when you're dealing with a self-replicating swarm, um, there are a lot of... Um, conceptual parallels that can be applied to the engineering problems that uh, biology through, you know, many, many years of evolution has already solved. Right. Um, and so that, uh, that aspect of the technology actually um, uh, plays a role um, in the, uh, uh, how the case unfolds and in the difference between how Atlas with their Kind of large-scale macro technological uh, solution versus uh, source codes, uh, nanotech and microtech solution um, compare to each other, and how one or the other can go awry. Um, and 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 again, I'm I'm tiptoeing around certain aspects of the plot here, <laughs> but but yeah. Um, um, me reading up on the immune system actually uh, informs certain aspects of how the uh, the nanotech is structured in this book. Cool. So uh, the Dyson file deals a lot with concern, or excuse me, uh, what aside from its considerable raw entertainment value do you hope readers will carry with them long after reading the Dyson file? So <clears throat> two, two things. Well, there, there are a few things. One, I think that the... Uh, the setting um, is a very fun setting, and through the file books, you get to you get to experience more, more of the quirky, fun, you know, weird corners of of uh, of Cisco. Um, because Cisco is um, they're they're a post scarcity society, uh, and they pretty much have their their stuff in order. They've got it together from a technological aspect and from a societal aspect. They certainly have their problems. They certainly have their CD corners and their criminals and, and, and plenty of issues. Otherwise, they wouldn't need detectives. 
<laughs> but um, overall, they, they've got their stuff in order. And I think that kind of um, futuristic optimism, uh, it, it's appealing to me. Um, and I think it's appealing to the same, you know, to the same people who, you know, dig that aspect of, say, Star Trek. Right. You know, the optimism of the, the future that Star Trek uh, portrays. While, that, of course, they have many, many problems that they need to deal with. They also, from, uh, from a societal aspect, they have their stuff, you know, in order. Um, so, you know, there, there are a lot of interesting corners, um, probably more so in this one than in any of the other file books that, that um, Isaac and Susan uh, get drawn to. Um, the the other one of the other aspects is just that, and I've already mentioned this, but Isaac and Susan are just su such a fun pair to write, um, and they they play off of each other very well, and um, you know, there's uh, there's a there's a okay, so Isaac, you know. Isaac will sometimes, you know, tease Susan about her, you know, her her gung ho attitude, her her, you know, um, uh, propensity to, you know, want to blow up problems instead of, you know, bringing the problems in alive, as is their job at this point. Right. But there's a point in the in the novel where he 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 has to kind of swallow his pride and, and say, okay, I I, I need to. You know, I, would you be willing to, you know, switch over to your combat frame and solve this problem for us? Right. And 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 Susan's response is, you know, initially, uh, I, I forget the exact exchange what they have, but uh, but but she she eventually says that I I didn't realize that Christmas was coming early this year. <laughs> Um, so, so you have a lot of, you know, fun little exchanges between them like that. Um, and, and, and like I, I did indicate, their overall arch is heading somewhere. There is an endpoint, and we will get there eventually, but we will have a, a bit of fun and a bit of teasing along the way. Good deal. So what conventions can your fans hope to catch up with you at, and uh, what other work do you have in the pipeline for your fans to read? All right. So uh, the, the next convention that I'll be at is uh, MarsCon in Virginia Beach. Uh, this is mid-January, I think is when it is like 12th through the 15th, I want to say. I hope I am getting that right. But uh, MarsCon, Virginia Beach, January. Uh, in terms of other stuff. So um, this, is, this is actually one of the... the uh, interesting aspects for me doing these interviews is that I'm talking about book five, but literally yesterday I, I was uh, finishing up content edits for book six. So I had to kind of shift mental gears yeah. <laughs> because where, where the release schedule is and where readers are, that's not where I am normally. No. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, there is the Thermopylae Protocol. Uh, will be book six in the uh, the Dyson uh, the Gordian Division series. Right. <laughs> Let me get my words right. Um, and uh, it's so the protocol books 
uh, they're very much the 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 larger existential problems typically right. uh, that that require the full force of the Gordian division uh, to to combat. Um, <clears throat> but one of the things that we're doing differently in this one is that we are actually combining the uh, um, the the two uh, star um, you know teams uh, uh, for this adventure. So you have um, Rybert, uh, Agent Rybert Kaminsky, and the crew of the Clio um, teaming up with uh, Isaac and Susan. Uh, so, so we're basically combining both of the tracks that we've established uh, in this series for one uh, one big adventure. And um, uh, I've, I've actually, um, I, ha I haven't seen the cover yet, but I've seen the cover art and involves a, uh, uh, one of the uh, the admin time machines uh, in orbit around the moon, and there's a nuclear explosion going off in the moon. And there's a very good reason why this ship is angry at the moon. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it, but uh, but yes, nukes are involved. Uh, nukes plural. <laughs> good deal. Sounds exciting. Look forward to reading it. Uh, and uh, when there, will there... that? Uh... When's that on the schedule? So, so that one comes out. I believe it's on the schedule for uh, June um, next year. I think June fourth uh, is when it comes out. Um, I've also turned in uh, my other uh, solo work. Uh, so that is uh, called uh, "Freelancers of Neptune," and uh, <clears throat> I think the uh, it's. The, the elevator pitch is that it's a cross between Firefly and Larry Niven's Ringworld series. Mm. Um, so the, uh, the 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 tagline that I've kind of been toying with is uh, the solar system ain't what it used to be. Um, so you've got a uh, um, a a ragtag uh, crew on a, a you know, scrappy ship having adventures in a solar system that is very different than uh, what we have today, uh, basically due to the uh, scale of the macro engineering that's take taken place in its history. So um, Saturn doesn't have any rings anymore. Uh, Mercury is a gas giant, and there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for this. Um, uh, Earth is a unit of measure. No one really remembers the planet anymore. Um, and uh, the main character uh, lives on Neptune. Uh, yes, on Neptune, because there is a megastructure that girdles the planet that has a breathable atmosphere. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, and he, he gets caught up in an adventure to uh, find some lost technology and... Uh, Things spiral out of control, and he is and his crew end up way over their heads. <laughs> well, excellent. Uh, thanks again, Jacob, for coming on the show today. Uh, this has been Jacob Hollow and Griffin Barber discussing the Dyson file. Thank you for having me. And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynne Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, 
life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the Elven Court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. Chapter 6 A Date Which Will Live in Infamy a viceroy turned out to be a very high position in the elfin government. The word viceroy was a weird smash together of the words vice and royal, kind of like vice president, but with the idea that the president was somewhere else. In Windwolf's case, it was the queen of the elves who lived in an area that corresponded with Europe. Windwolf apparently was the youngest elf ever appointed to be a viceroy but Tinker got the impression it was by default. Windwolf had researched human explorations of the Americas and then led the first elfin landing in the Western lands once he reached majority. As a colony, it hadn't raided a viceroy, but with Pittsburgh's arrival and the sudden boom in trade, Windwolf had been elevated solely because he was the principal landowner. This made him a target both inside and outside his clan, Elders in his clan thought someone older with less radical ideas should replace him. The other clans were split. Half wanted control of the trade with the humans, and the rest wanted to break off contact totally. The queen, though, favored Windwolf, so he remained viceroy. All things considered, girl genius or not, Windwolf was depressingly out of reach for a human teenager that ran a scrapyard. Maynard tried to explain the elfin politics to Tinker while escorting her out to his limo. He was hampered by the fact that her grandfather had taught her nothing about human government and very little world geography. No use cluttering up one's mind with things that change, as he'd put it. What she did know came from Lane, who believed in a rounded education. Insects specialize, not humans. It's in humans' best interest that Windwolf stay viceroy, Maynard finished. He's an intelligent, honorable being with an open mind. It's also in our best interest to stay on his good side. Letting two minor human agents kidnap his newest family member would surely infuriate him. Family member? Tinker squeaked. I'm keeping things simple, Maynard said cryptically. The elfin guard at the border saw a member of Windwolf's family with two humans, and the humans claimed that person, you, as their prisoner. That's a basic violation of the treaty. I'll have to finesse things to calm the waters. If Windwolf doesn't know about this already, he will shortly. Luckily, the border guard called the EIA to help extract you safely. You mean I did all that running around for no reason? Maynard slanted a look in her direction. It did keep the NSA from learning the truth about your identity and the whereabouts of Alexander Graham Bell, and did delay their attempts to remove you from the hospice until I had a chance to arrive. It wasn't a waste of time. Where are they now? Tinker glanced out of the limo's back window at the hospice. They've been arrested for violating the treaty. If they're lucky, they won't be summarily executed. You're joking. I'm not, Maynard said. 
The NSA has committed a serious breach of protocol out of ignorance. They're making it worse by refusing to discuss why. Did they explain anything to you? She considered him. He currently was the only thing standing between her and the NSA. But that was for Windwolf's sake, not hers. She was only important because of Windwolf. She hedged. I told you my father was murdered. The NSA think I could be in danger from the same people. The NSA don't usually commit two agents for 30 days to protect a little girl. She glared at him. I'm not a little girl. I'm a woman. Or a woman. She supposed that keeping the truth from him when he was bound to discover it from the NSA agents sooner or later would only serve to annoy him. My father was Leonardo da Vinci Dufay. She hadn't expected him to recognize her father's name and was thus surprised when he did. Leonardo da Fay, The man who invented the hyperphase gate? Where did the name Bell come from? Is that your egg mother's name? Tinker winced. It's complicated. On the night Leonardo was killed, his office was ransacked and all his notes and computer equipment stolen. About a month later, someone tried to kidnap my grandfather. Grandpa always claimed it was Leonardo's murderers, who realized that what they stole off Leo wasn't complete and thought Grandpa could fill in the missing information. The government stepped in and gave Grandpa a new identity and relocated him out of Pittsburgh. When the Chinese started to build the gate, Grandpa left protective custody and disappeared totally. I'm not sure what he did during the next five years and what names he went by, but when Pittsburgh was first transported to Elfholm, he was living here under the name of Timothy Bell. And to stay in Pittsburgh, he couldn't change it, Maynard guessed. The hasty peace treaty had allowed only residents listed on the census to remain after the first shutdown, a ruling carried out by armed forces. Even when I was born, he was still too afraid to give me the name Dufay. He kept his inventions hidden. Lane always said he was a little loony in that regard. Then how did the NSA suddenly find you? I applied to CMU. Since I'm basically homeschooled and didn't want to be stuck on Earth for a month in order to take the standardized tests, Lane thought I should use my father's legacy to get in. After all these years with Grandpa dead and all, I didn't think anyone would care who my father was. Maynard gazed out of the window of his limo, considering what she'd told him. After a moment of silence, he said, You said the stolen information wasn't complete. No, it wasn't. She'd never thought it important, but now maybe it was, and so she tried to piece it all together in her own mind. If I had just lived with my grandfather, I probably wouldn't know the whole of this, but Oil Can lived with his mother until he was ten, so there are family things he knows that Grandpa never told me. The founder of the Dufay line, hundreds of years ago in France, was an elf. Dufay was a physician to the nobility, and was beheaded in the French Revolution. His wife and son fled to America. When my father and aunt were children, my great-great... She paused to count it out. Great-aunt lived with them. She was over a century old, and she recounted stories that her great-grandmother had told her about the first Dufay. What made my father's work so groundbreaking was that much of it wasn't an extension of someone else's work, but was extrapolated from anecdotal information handed down through my family for generations. Apparently, Dufay had traveled from Elfholm to Earth, but couldn't get back. 
If you believe the stories, then Dufay was proof of parallel dimensions. The elves had gates? No, not really. It seemed to be a natural phenomenon in certain cave systems, most likely an iron ore embedded in quartz with a great deal of ambient magic present. In human legends, elves were a race that lived under a hill. By all accounts, including Dufay's, Elves and humans crossed back and forth between the two dimensions quite freely. Then something happened, and Dufay became stranded on Earth. Something happened, Maynard echoed, puzzled. Like the gates stopped working? From the stories, yes. Dufay traveled Europe, trying all the gates he knew about, and none of them worked, but he didn't know why. Maynard frowned over this news for a minute then turned his mind back to Tinker's father. I'm not sure I follow. What does this Dufay have to do with Leonardo's plans being incomplete? She considered telling Maynard about Dufay's codex, but decided not to. Let that remain a long-kept family secret. Because of the great-aunt's stories about Dufay, my father started work on his theories as early as ten, writing down the tales and trying to conduct scientific analyses of them. This was the 1980s and 1990s, just as computers were becoming exponential in ability. When he upgraded to a new computer, he would only move his most recent files across and continue work from there. After Leo's death, my grandfather consolidated everything into one system. But on the night of Leo's murder, his work was spread across half a dozen machines. The thieves only took the one at his offices, without realizing there were five more at home. They got information on how to build the gate, but not why it was designed the way it was in the first place. Maynard groaned at the stupidity of the thieves. I've seen the intelligence reports showing that the gate was definitely your father's work, but there have always been things that puzzled me about the whole thing. Most inventions have been a foot race to see who could make the breakthrough first. With the gate, your father's work came out of the blue, and it's been a scramble to work backward to see how he designed it. This explains why there were no small-scale experiments, but it leaves the biggest question. Which is... Why in the world did the Chinese steal the design and sink so much money into building the gate when there was no proof that it would work? It's stunning that it does work. Mostly works. The little problem of Pittsburgh swap to Elf Home is because the plans were flawed, but the Chinese haven't been able to fix the problem. Maynard turned his focus on Tinker. NSA thinks that you can build a gate from scratch without the design flaws of your father's. It's a possibility that they're seriously entertaining. Can you? It would be safer to say no, straight out lie. There was a matter of the placement test questions, but there were levels to understanding. One has to know enough to answer rote questions. The higher level was understanding to the point of creation. It was an invisible barrier that divided the likes of Newton and Einstein from the rest of the scientific world. Could a test question expose that level of understanding? Did she even have it? She thought she understood her father's theories, but she could be wrong. Certainly she'd never played with them, attempting to create or correct. You can, Maynard said while she wavered. I might, she tempered it. There's a profound lack of parts for such items in Pittsburgh. And there's the matter of getting into space, 
Maynard quipped. It doesn't have to be in space. My family's stories are filled with foreboding as to what might have caused the gates to fail. My father thought that space was just the safest place to put a doorway between worlds. So he wasn't predicting the veil effect? Tinker looked out the side window, past the river to the elfin forest. No, to be quite frank, I think he would be horrified. That was another installment in Win Spencer's Tinker, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judgewitz. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.